how y'all do? I'm Michael, joined by Alex as always. How's it going? And this is Fallen Through Plotholes, a podcast about video game plot lines and how they have a tendency to go off the rails. And this is part three and our final part on Final Fantasy VI, the Super Nintendo RPG by Square, now Square Enix, that I absolutely adore. This is going to be the second part of the plot synopsis for that. So if you want to listen to the first half, you can go to ftp.podbean.com and listen to that. Or, of course, if you want to learn about the development of this, you could also go to the same website and learn all about that. If you're here to just find out how exactly everyone's going to pick up the pieces after a crazy clown man destroyed the world, well, you're in the right place. But before we get into that, Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. I've uh, been spending the weekend playing that new Prince of Persia, The Lost mm-hmm. Crown. Uh, that's a solid game. Real, really nice uh, re-entry into the series after it's been dormant for a while. Yeah, it's always nice to see series like that make a nice comeback and yeah. have like just like a really solid game they can hang their hat on. Mm-hmm. Like I was really happy when like Mega Man 11 came out and it was just yeah. like, an incredibly mm-hmm. solid game. Yeah, hopefully Ubisoft does a little bit more of Prince of Persia than uh, Capcom has done with Mega Man. I don't know if I want them to, because every time Ubisoft realizes something is, like, popular, Mm. they just are like, well, what if we did one of these a year until everyone hates it? Yeah, they are the Western Capcom, so... Kind of, yeah. Like, I enjoyed when they made Star Force, and that was fun, and then they didn't make any more Star Force, and I could just go, yeah, Star Force was fun. Yeah, it's, like, perfect. Don't need any more. It's great. Yep. Best Star Fox game since Star Fox 64. <laughs> Especially when they put the Star Fox characters in uh-huh. there. Ah, <laughs> oh, good stuff. Good stuff. Well, I have been doing well myself. Uh, first off, apologies to the listeners out there. Uh, we were going to record an episode last week. <laughs> but then Awesome Games Done Quick, the charity speedrunning marathon happened, and it was one of the best I have ever seen. I... Like, the vibe around that show has been kind of weird the past couple of years, just due to COVID and uh, and what have you. Mm. But this year, they were completely in full swing and were firing on all cylinders, leading to some really great runs, like a run of Gyromite for the Nintendo Entertainment System that was done by a dog named <laughs> Peanut Butter, which was amazing. That That sounds like peak content. It really is. It is. It was peak. It is 100% peak content. It it goes on for a little too long, Mm. but I was still enthralled the whole way through because I like dogs. Yes. Yeah. So like if there was like, you know, stuff like that, the awful block where they play bad video games is always great. Like they Mm -hmm. showed off Sneak King, everyone's favorite Burger King tie in product (laughs) that works on both the Xbox and Xbox 360 Mm -hmm. on the rare uh, dual printed discs. And of course, they finished off with an RPG, specifically Final Fantasy V, my favorite Final Fantasy mm. game. What this meant, though, is that I edited a podcast and went, I should start writing notes and then just kind of watched games done quick. Yeah. Tire time. Mm-hmm. It was bad. I'm actually really happy the show's over now because I've been able to live a normal life again. <laughs> do things like exercise. Mm. So we're back in the swing of things, though. And we have a really good episode for you all today. So, to begin with, I suppose I should give a little bit of a recap of what happened last time on this podcast. So, Final Fantasy VI starts off in a world that is more of like a Victorian Second Industrial Revolution era, like Earth, Mm -hmm. where... 
there is an evil empire and they are trying to take over the world via magic. Turns out there was this thing called the War of the Magi that happened about a thousand years ago where espers, magical beings, and humans more or less fought, sometimes side by side, sometimes against each other. And now the empire is trying to revive that era more or less by getting espers, taking the magic out of them, and then using it themselves. Our main character, Tara, a young woman who is half esper and half human, seems to be the key to fighting against the Empire, and with the assistance of the Returners, which include people like the King Edgar Figaro, his brother Sabin, and a bunch of other people, uh, including Locke the Thief, and Celis the Magitech Knight-slash-General who defected from the Empire, they successfully fight back against the Empire, uh, their leader Emperor Gessel, and his first-in-command, Kefka, a magic-infused a magic clown man who... Unfortunately, it goes a little bit crazy, goes mad with power, and after discovering some magic uh, artifacts called the Warring Triad, actually just sort of ends the world. <laughs> <laughs> after summoning a giant floating continent and deciding to move, basically move these magic pillars out of place, disrupting the balance of the world and giving him ultimate power to do whatever he pleases. And that's kind of where we sit right now. Uh, we are going to be picking up right after the, the world has ended. Continents have been literally burst apart. Seemingly, all of our party members are dead, and the land is literally dying beneath the people's feet. So, things are going great, <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. So, we open up with a panning shot over the ocean, on a world that is now perpetually bathed in the light of a late summer sunset, as we settle on an empty, desolate island. Inside a broken-down house, we go inside to find Celis, the Magitech knight that I was just talking about, confined to a bed, with Sid washing over her. Now, to remind you, Sid is a chief scientist in the Empire who's responsible for figuring out how to take the magic out of the magical beings known as, as espers and putting it into other machines. Uh, and people, actually, as well. Uh, he not, then discovers that that's bad. Yeah, not, not his best work. I mean, it's his most impressive work, but maybe yeah. he shouldn't have done that. His most morally questionable, let's say. Yeah. And then when confronted by a bunch of people holding swords and guns, <laughs> he was like, oh, you're right. I, that was, <laughs> that was wrong. And he How could I have been so blind? Yeah. <laughs> As you point this crossbow at my head. Yeah. So he decided that, okay, maybe we shouldn't, uh, maybe I shouldn't do this anymore. And since he helped infuse cells with magic, he, him and cells are very close. So, Sid has been watching over her for the past year as she has been asleep. Wow. Yeah. And as Cels wakes up, Sid is absolutely happy about this. He's like, man, yeah, it's been basically just me kind of watching over you. Uh, and this, we just been hanging out on this island, and it seems like there's nothing else out there. Now, this didn't always, this wasn't always the case. It turns mm. out there was a bunch of people there. But as the plants withered and animals died, they all one by one gave up hope and just threw themselves off the cliff nearby. Cliffs nearby. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, no, this game gets incredibly dark just like <laughs> immediately. Just like, yeah, there was a bunch of people here and then they all committed suicide one by one. Congrats. Oh, by the way, I'm mildly sick. <laughs> <laughs> so, Celis is understandably depressed by this and Sid tries to cheer her up. Telling her, hey, listen, you're all that I have left. And honestly, I've always thought you as family. And this somehow works 
Selisk is happy, and she decides to start calling Sid Granddad. A fact they're both pleased with, to the point that Sid's co Sid coughs with happiness. And also because he's dying. <laughs> oh. So, Sid apparently has been sick for the past three days and hasn't eaten. And so it's now up to Celis to go down to the beach, catch fish with her bare hands, and stuff it directly into Sid's mouth as he rests in bed. Yeah, that's, that's good treatment. Everyone knows that. It's great treatment. This is a terrible minigame you have to do, because you have to mm. catch fast fish, and you have to get mm -hmm. back to him in time to feed him. Otherwise, he dies. <laughs> <laughs> now, you can't save his life, but for the purposes of this episode... We're going to just say that stuffing raw whole fish into a dying elderly man's mouth is ineffective at best. Mm -hmm. So Celis comes back one day with the fish, only to find Sid's dead body. So Celis, distraught by this, and the thought of being the only one left in the desolate world, takes herself up to the northern cliffs. Seeing a dead bird on top of the cliffs, Celis thinks of Locke as she jumps off the cliffs into the ocean below. Now, this is an incredibly sad seed, mm -hmm. but Celis somehow survives and washes ashore only to see a seagull staring at her. She then notices that it's wounded, and its wound is bandaged with a piece of the same scarf Locke wore. Actually, bandana. The same bandana mm -hmm. Locke wore. Now, this is a hell of a coincidence, and it's not going to be the only case of bird-related coincidence that's going to somehow <laughs> lead to things in this episode. I, I don't know why this gets repeated, but don't worry I mean, about it. I guess if the land is broken and there's ocean everywhere, you kind of need birds to cross that divide i suppose so although the second time is gonna be ridiculous okay <laughs> but regardless this fills cells with hope and she goes back in the house to where she finds a letter from sid in it it reads cellus you must leave this island somewhere out there your friends are waiting for you go down the stairs by the stove the road to your freedom awaits love granddad now sid is alive he just goes hey i feel better by the way i built a raft <laughs> okay so, down in the cellar, Cells finds a raft and sails away from the island, only to nearly drown again and wake up on a nearby continent. She's gotta stop with the washing up thing. She needs a better mode of travel. Honestly, Cells really shouldn't have a thing with Locke. It should be with Saban, because they just both yeah. really love trying to drown, as it mm -hmm. turns out. Plus, he's a much happier and it seems to be a more stable person, too. Yeah. Not having comatose girlfriends just stashed away in basements. <laughs> so yeah, she wakes up in a, on a nearby continent, and she walks to the closest town she can see. Now, this town is seemingly deserted. And she's like, all right, there's a couple dogs around, like, whatever. But then she sees, like, a bunch of orphans, and they, like, all run away into a home. So she follows them in there, and that leads down to these caves, where she finds even more orphans, and absolutely no adults. Except for a couple of teenagers, one of whom is pregnant. Now, these children are ready to throw down with Celis <laughs> when their mama shows up. Tara! So, hey, one of our party members is alive. Great. Okay. So, it turns out after the airship blew up, Tara stumbled upon this town where all the adults died. Now, you're probably asking, okay. how did they die? Yes. Well, you see, nearby, there's an inaccessible trash spire that extends all the way up to the heavens. <laughs> And, okay. And one day, a light emanated from this spire, cutting a giant valley into the ground where all the adults fell into. Literally, they all just fell into this ravine and died. Oh, okay. Yeah. This light, uh, <laughs> called the Light of Judgment, is one of the many powers used by Kefka, the now god of the world. Because that is his trash spire, as it turns out. That's where he mm -hmm. lives now. Okay. 
The Trash King is living on his trash throne. So, all the kids are now alone, and Tara has taken it upon herself to take care of these children and troubled teens ever since. And while Celis really wants her to come along to beat up Kefka, she feels like she can't abandon the children, who are literally saying, hey, she's the only reason we're alive and continue to live. Hmm, fair. Yeah, it's like, alright, nah, legit. Now, Tara backs this up, saying that the second they saw, she saw their predicament, the strength to fight was completely lost in her. And for some reason, she just feels something inside of her that tells her she needs to stay with them. Uh-huh. Now, this is bad because a giant green monster named Humbaba then shows up <laughs> to do something. Uh-huh. So, he beats up Tara until Cells fights him off long enough that he just kind of up and leaves. Okay. So, Tara takes this as proof that she can't do anything, and Celis, unable to convince her, just leaves. So, heading to the next uh, town over, this poor town named Nikea, Celis finds out there's a bunch of pirates that are hanging out in town with their, real, their leader, Jared. And they're planning to go and rob Figaro Castle, which is now apparently trapped underground. So, Jared, it turns out, is just, he's just King Edgar. Okay. He, he, like, he basically changed his clothes, mm-hmm. but... Otherwise, he is literally just him to the point that Celis is like, hey, Edgar. He's like, I'm not Edgar. I am a pirate now. I'm not the king of Figaro. I'm just a dirty, sexy pirate. That's me. <laughs> and Celis is like, this is this is dumb as hell. He's like, no, you're, you're dumb. Your pretty face is dumb. I'm going to get on my ship and go to Castle Figaro now. So Celis sneaks up on the ship and follows him through a bunch of caves until they break into Figaro Castle. So, long story short, Edgar conned a bunch of pirates into helping him get into the castle so he could free the, free it because its mm-hmm. engines, which allow it to barrel, burrow underground and travel continents, I guess it just got a bunch of worms in it. And so you have to beat up a bunch of worms, and once you do that, uh, you're able to get the castle moving and rescue the people who are trapped in there. He then fakes his own death so the pirates go away and then goes, yeah, man, I'm totally down to mess up Kefka. Let's do this. <laughs> so, Edgar and Celis uh, continue traveling to search for their friends, and they travel to the town of Kolingan, uh, Kolingan being the town where Locke's uh, comatose girlfriend is, by the way, mm. uh, where in a bar, they find a drunken and depressed Setzer. So it turns out losing his airship and the world has completely crushed his spirit. But don't worry, Celis has a plan. She's going to pep him up by saying, hey, cheer up. Maybe your dreams are dead, but why not just t- chase after a new one? <laughs> and he's like what what dream he's like well what about taking back our world and Setzer goes huh alright that could possibly work and Celis is like wait it it did (laughs) and he's like yeah follow me we gotta go see an old friend so Setzer goes to this tomb of an old friend named Daryl now inside her shockingly large tomb Setzer reminisces about his friend and in the scene that's really good, like you're descending downstairs while um, this really soft piano music is playing, like there'll be mm-hmm. pictures like that will show up on the on the black background that are basically just flashbacks between these two. Mm. It's really, really well done. Mm-hmm. And basically, Daryl was Setzer before Setzer in the sense that she was a carefree woman who loved to put it all on the line, whether it was gambling or airships. Turns out she had a new experimental airship that she planned on testing out. And after they went flying in their own separate airships, Setzer peels off and tells her to meet her at the usual, meet him at the usual spot, only for her to never show up. Setzer then explains they found a wreck of her airship, the Falcon, one year later. Mm. Yeah, pretty grim. Mm-hmm. 
Setzer fixes the ship up and places it in Daryl's tomb to rest with her. So it's all fixed up now. It's mm-hmm. even better than the Blackjack, his own airship. And so he's like, we're going to use this to find our friends. So they get into the they get into the Falcon and take off. Some incredibly awesome music plays mm-hmm. here. And you literally just fly out of the ocean and then just start flying around at high speeds. And like now, like the music's like super hopeful and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, all right, well, we can just land on top of the Kefka's trash spire and just go take him out if we want to. But everyone else is like, well, we probably shouldn't do that. We probably should actually find our friends. Right. And specifically, Celis is like, sees a pigeon fly by. And she goes, <laughs> we need to follow that pigeon. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because apparently it's like a passenger pigeon. She's like, it must be delivering a message. And it landed in a nearby town. That's like half a world away, but I don't know. We'll just follow our airship. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, sure. You definitely won't outrun the pigeon in your fastest airship in the world. Yeah, definitely not. You definitely won't do that. This is what I was talking about when I said there's just another like really weird bird-related contrivance that just happens. Right. <laughs> and it's really silly. It's really a case of like... Okay, we got to convince people not to just immediately fly to Kefka's, uh, mm-hmm. like, the final dungeon and whatnot. Right. And, well, you, you know. You need you got, a hook. You need breadcrumbs. Yeah, you got to do what you got to do. And Understandable. This is what they had. This is what they rolled with. So they follow the bitch into a nearby town. And after it lands on a house, they walk in to see a woman surrounded by silk flowers. Apparently sent to her by her boyfriend, who had just started suddenly writing her again out of nowhere. Now, they read some of these letters. They see that the writing is, like, very elaborate. Mm-hmm. And we're like, huh, this sounds like somebody we know. <laughs> and then they find out that the pigeon has been traveling from this town to a nearby mountain. And so they head up there, find this mountain cave, and find basically a letter and a bunch of the same flowers just all around it. So Celis reads the letter, and it essentially says, Dear Lola, I'm sorry I've been lying. Your boyfriend has been dead for some time. Humans have a tendency to get trapped and not move on. I suggest you don't do that. (laughs) Cyan. So yeah, everyone's favorite samurai whose entire family got poisoned to death by an evil clown apparently just decided to start writing, pretending to be somebody's boyfriend and start writing her letters. Sure, I mean... It ties it to his character. Mm -hmm. It's a little weird. I don't don't completely hate this, but it is weird. Mm Mm-hmm. So the party then sees a very embarrassed Cyan who tries to explain after trying to hide all the flowers after everyone's seen them. Uh-huh. He's like, okay, listen, I, when I was in town, I heard this woman kept sending letters every day to her dead boyfriend, and I just felt compelled to reply. But I realized that it was just me not being able to move on from my own family. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, fe- I realized it wasn't healthy. healthy. Anyways, glad to see y'all. Yeah, we should go. <laughs> just go find Capco. Just, let's just stop talking about this, please. So... Once again, at this point, you could just go to Kefka's trash tower and beat him up, but that'd mm-hmm. be a little boring. So let's check on what everyone else is doing. And you can kind of do all this in any order, more or less, because mm. at this point, the game becomes incredibly open mm-hmm. uh, in a way that Final Fantasy V sort of did, but not nearly to this extent. So we're going to do this in no particular order. Actually, there's a slight order. We're going to do like the least important and get to the most important. Okay. So we're going to start with Saban. <laughs> so the party walks into a town that just gets hit with like the light of judgment, mm-hmm. which nearly like levels a building. 
However, Saban manages to hold up a side of the building because some <laughs> kids are trapped inside. And so you go in, you get the kids out, Saban lets go of the building, lets it collapse, and just joins up with the crew. Simple as that. Cool. Also, you can find out his master, Duncan, is actually alive and just let his son Vargas think he was dead so he could get mm-hmm. stronger. And then his son died, and he's not particularly disturbed by that. Ah, okay. In fact, he's like, well, that sucks. Anyway, Saban, I'm going to teach you your ultimate technique now. A game that's called, a technique that's called the Phantom Rush, but in the original translation, it's just called Bum Rush. <laughs> which is a name I vastly prefer. Mm. Next up, Realm, everyone's favorite 10-year-old magic user who's really good at painting. Mm-hmm. So... Realm has been commissioned by a rich guy to paint a bunch of pictures for his mansion, specifically one of a naked lady that he's just really into. Now, unfortunately, his house is haunted, and it causes the paintings (laughs) to come alive, which neither Realm notices nor really cares about after you rescue her. She's like, oh, oh, that happened? All right, cool, whatever. Oh, we're going to go and punch a clown in the face? Yeah, no, I'm down. I I am the hardest 10-year-old that's ever existed. (laughs) I mean, don't her paintings come alive a lot anyway? Yeah, to be fair, that is true. <laughs> so it's like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. That's the thing that happens. Yeah, she's just like, yep, nope, this tracks. <laughs> so we might as well check in on her grandfather, Strago, next. Mm-hmm. So Strago thinks his granddaughter is dead, and in his grief, he has joined the cult of Kafka. A group of fanatics who hang around a giant tower and just kind of walk and not talk. Mm-hmm. Realm shows up to basically just punch him in the face and be like, stop being an idiot. <laughs> and Strago's overjoyed by this and is like, all right, cool, let's go fight. Next up with Gaul, everyone's favorite feral child. You can find him in the veld. You just go and you just you run into him and goes, oh, hey, cool. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's go. Mm-hmm. Now, you can find his crazy schizophrenic father who lives alone in a hut. And basically be like, huh, he's talking about a weird demon child. I bet he's talking about Gaul. And after a scene where you have like a fun dress up sequence where the party helps him pick out clothes and whatnot, mm-hmm. you can actually reintroduce him to his dad. And his dad goes, yeah, my child was a demon. I abandoned him. He was incredibly evil. Unlike this child who could barely speak. He seems like he has a he seems like he's his parents should be proud of him. Anyways. Yeah, my child is a real demon. I'm glad I abandoned him. And everyone's like. Oh, no, just let's just get going, Gaul. It's yeah, just, we should we should go. <laughs> yeah, this is this is bad. Mm. And Gaul's like, ah, I'm just glad he's doing OK. <laughs> Finally, you can find a character who's literally just a Final Fantasy five reference. If you let yourself get eaten by another monster. Nice. This is Golgo. He was a boss of Final Fantasy five. Who's a mime. You beat mm-hmm. him by doing literally nothing. Uh, even his battle mechanics are exactly how Final Fantasy five works. Mm-hmm. Like you select basically his abilities, and equip them. Mm-hmm. He's pretty rad. Uh, he doesn't contribute anything past this point. Cool. You can also find uh, the Moogle Mog, mm. uh, who technically helped you out at the very beginning of the game and then was optional past that point. Okay. And his friend, Umaro, who's a Yeti. <laughs> <laughs> so, now the more involved ones. Starting with Locke. Locke has tracked down a lead that there's a treasure that can revive a loved one. After finding it in a volcano, it's revealed that the treasure is the Magicite Phoenix. Mm. Taking it back to Rachel, his comatose girlfriend, it explodes in her presence, waking Rachel up. She's happy to see Locke, but tells him that the Phoenix used up its power to give her only a few moments to tell him something. 
Thank you for all the happiness. But buddy, you need to let go. (laughs) (laughs) You love somebody else now. It's fine. She then floats up into the sky and explodes. Ah, okay. (laughs) It somehow puts Locke at ease and he joins up with everybody. So Phoenix doesn't exactly work as advertised. No, it does not. (laughs) It'll also cause your dead girlfriend to explode, so be careful about that. Mm. If you have a dead girlfriend and the Phoenix (laughs) Magicite. Yeah, it's it's wild. Locke is so difficult to recruit in this game because his dungeon, first off, is not obvious to Mm -hmm. find. And also, it's a dungeon where you have to split up your party and it's difficult Mm. to do. Right. ah, Getting him is terrible. So, next up, we have Shadow. So, Shadow, turns out, has been competing in the Coliseum, trying to find a mythical Tonto that's been hidden in a nearby cave. It doesn't go well for him, because he gets jumped by a behemoth, mm. and after the party sees him, he's taken back to Thamassa and placed in the bed for, you know, to heal up, mm-hmm. where he dreams of a young man and his dog leaving a town. The dog tries to stop him, but after failing, decides to follow him. Alex, what follows is one of the most frustrating ways to see a character's backstory. Oh, boy. Because it's 100% RNG dependent. <laughs> you have to have okay. them in your party, and you have uh-huh. to sleep at random inns and hope you get random dreams explaining his backstory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, thankfully, if you're listening to this podcast, you don't have to deal with that. I'll tell you all about the tale of a man named Clyde. So, Clyde was best friends with a guy named Barum, and they were very excitable train robbers. <laughs> They robbed trains all over the place and eventually became known as the Shadow Bandits. Until one day, a job goes wrong and Barum is badly wounded. With the authorities closing in on them, Barum begs Clyde to kill him, scared of what will happen if he's caught and arrested. Clyde, however, can't bring himself to do it and runs away while his friend both pleads to die and curses his name. He eventually ends up in Thamasa, marries a woman, and has a daughter. A daughter who is Realm but suddenly just leaves one day, afraid of his past catching up to him. It's heavily implied throughout the game that it, that Realm is his daughter. It technically mm-hmm. is never confirmed, but it should be noted that Shadow can technically die in the world of balance. Hmm. Like, you have to wait, like, basically, you have to wait at the end of the floating continent until the absolute last minute for Shadow to show up and rejoin your party. Mm-hmm. If he is dead, you actually find Realm in this place. Huh. Yeah. And Realm actually dreams about her father abandoning her. So that's how you put that two and two together. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's Shadow's backstory right there. A few other things can also happen at this point. Uh, Narcissus is haunted by ghosts and demons, and you can find a sweet sword there, uh, the Ragnarok. Mm-hmm. There's a flying horror called Doomgaze that you could just randomly run into. Uh, yeah, that one's fun, because you just run yeah. into him, and he just starts like wiping your party. It's great. <laughs> yep. A bunch of legendary dragons have now been released or doing things like walking around in the snow or attending the opera or being mm-hmm. dead but not really hmm. you can find cactars as well it's the first time they ever show up in the in the series oh wow yeah there's also a beard castle where the ghosts of the war from the war of the magi reenact battles from that war where a group of humans and espers try to fight off the i guess another group of humans and espers uh this is where we find odin as well and find out he was in love with a human princess until they all hmm. got turned to stone a few other little odds and ends include Strago going back to Thamasa and finding his old friend Gungho injured in bed. It turns out he went to find the monster Hydon, a monster they tried to hunt when they were young. Strago takes off to hunt this monster down and fulfill their youthful dream. Which, by the way, Hydon isn't messing with anybody. 
<laughs> he just lives in a cave on a random island. His uh-huh. name's Hydon because he likes Heidi. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> but Strago just wants to murder this thing. Yeah, for some fight reason. him. Fight the monster. Get him. Yeah. And he does. He murders the monster, goes back to Gung Ho, kicks him out of the bed, and excitedly gets drunk with him, telling him about how he's killed him. <laughs> uh, it's during this uh, drunken celebration that Realm realizes Gung Ho isn't injured at all and just made up the story so Strago would finally stop talking about hunting Hydon and actually uh-huh. just go do it. So mm. there's that. Mm-hmm. Finally, Cyan can actually go back to Doma Castle and sleep in one of the beds, which causes him to be trapped in a dream world by three small children who plan on taking his soul. Uh-huh. Yeah, the party's able to help pull him out of this dream after finding the souls of his dead wife and child, who eventually help him get over his trauma. Mm-hmm. But without this, that all that out of the way, it's time to get to the big one, Terra. So back at whatever ter- town Terra was in that I've already forgotten about with the orphans, mm-hmm. Uh, we find out that one of the teens, Dwayne, has run away because he's freaking out about getting his girlfriend pregnant. The party helps him reconcile just long enough for the giant monster Humbaba to come back, and Tara begs the party to stop him, given that she just doesn't have the strength to do it anymore herself. Mm-hmm. This goes poorly. <laughs> Humbaba just beats everyone up, and so Tara, realizes she needs to do something, activates her esper form, and is able to easily slay Humbaba. Landing back in town, the kids see Terra and just scattered, scared that another monster has shown up. However, one of the little girls walks up to Terra, and realizing it's her, calls her mama. The kids then gather all around her, no longer afraid, and Terra realizes she can fight again. She finally understands the feeling growing inside of her. It's love. It's, it's a scene that plays out better mm-hmm. when you're watching it than a synopsis, I should right. point out. Uh, and it's a good... It's a good wrapping up of Tara's whole thing in the first half of the game, where she's like, will I ever know what it's like to love? And everyone's mm-hmm. like, I, I don't know if you found something worthy of love. And she's like, right. I don't know what that is. And it's like, well, maybe one day you will. Here, she finally has. And it gives her the strength to fight. I'm, I'm just thinking about it's it's kind of one of the only instances I can think of of, well, what if, what if the female character's driving force was motherhood? Hmm. That I I don't actually dislike. Yeah. Like, it it kind of works. Yeah, it's usually one of the laziest motivations that Mm -hmm. you can have in any sort of fiction of like, well, you know, women like being moms, I guess. So yeah, do that. Crazy about those children and babies. Mm -hmm. Absolutely crazy. Yeah, it's this is the one time where that this actually like works and i think it's i think it works because it's more of like a found family sort of situation yeah and, and it, to... it, it ties into sort of her her history mm-hmm. and like all of the things that influenced like how she got to this point yeah yeah there's there's a decent build up and there's a decent payoff it's not just i see a baby now i must protect yeah. it yeah so i think yeah i i think it ends up working out quite a bit so with all that, your entire party is now assembled, and now it's time to fight Kefka. Landing on Kefka's tower, they come up with a plan to stop him. They need to rid him of magic, and they figure the only way to do so is by destroying the Warring Triad, the three statues of magic that give Kefka his power. Cells, mm-hmm. however, is a little worried about that, because she's like, okay, if we do that, magic's likely going to disappear from the world. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for the Espers? Are they going to disappear too? And if they disappear... What's going to happen with Terra, who's half-esper? Mm. Terra's like, hey, listen, don't worry about that. This is literally the only plan we have. So we should just get in there and just 
do it. Mm-hmm. So they landed three separate parties on the tower, each one tasked with destroying one of the statues. Kefka's tower is cool as hell. <laughs> so it's a tower that was formed after the debris from all over the world was drawn in by Kefka's power to form said tower, which means it's just a mishmash of mountains, towns, and what have you. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the remains are in fact like the city of Vector, including the old Magitic research facility in the castle. So there's like a lot of bent and twisted metal all around. Mm-hmm. Monsters are half fused with machines pr- patrolling what counts for corridors of this tower. Like there's random dead ends everywhere. It, like it really works. Mm. Um, like the music itself mm-hmm. is also pretty good. It's it's not the best Final Dungeon theme that's ever existed. Like it's like the Northern Crater from Final Fantasy VII easily tops right. it in my opinion. But uh-huh. it's pretty darn good too. Now they all eventually make their way to the Warring Triad, the Fiend the goddess, and the demon, and destroy them. However, magic doesn't fade away like they expect, and they realize Kefka had just taken up all that power for himself. So they are then whisked to the top of the tower. And on top of the tower, amongst floating spires of metal and dirt, Kefka descends and welcomes his friends, and is immediately greeted with jeers and questions like, what are you going to stop killing everyone? (laughs) Kefka tells them, never. He has such magnificent power, so why would he ever give that up? You're nothing but fleas to me, as he uses his powers to just randomly pick up people and fling them about. Mm. He then tells them to embrace your dis- destruction. It's the fate of all things. The party then counters, our fate? To be destroyed? Maybe it is, but people can always rebuild, and new lives will always be born. Kefka thinks this is dumb. He just <laughs> says, and time will destroy those as well. Why do people insist on creating things that will inevitably be destroyed? And why do people cling to life? knowing that they must someday die, knowing that none of it will meant anything they do. Kefka then finishes his Philosophy 101 presentation by flinging more party members around. <laughs> but they regain their strength and fight back and respond that it's not the end that matters, it's knowing that you have something to live for right now, at this moment. Depending on who you have, party members will then list these things. For Shadow, it's friends and family. For Edgar, it's his peaceful kingdom. For Celis, somebody willing to accept her for who she is. For Realm, her obnoxious grandpa, somebody she couldn't live without. For Setzer, for wings from a dear old friend. For Locke, a person worth protecting, which that, all the people he wants to protect don't need protecting, but whatever. Yeah, you know. For Terra, love. For Sabin, for a brother who always looks out for me. For Strago, for my adorable little granddaughter. For Cyan, a wife and child who live on within me. And for Gaul, who's just like, uh, these people, I guess? I don't know. (laughs) They seem cool. You seem stupid. (laughs) Yeah, that's all I got, man. (laughs) If I think, and I think Umaru just goes growl. (laughs) Kefka at this point, though, is just kind of done with this. He simply Mm -hmm. responds, bleh, you people make me sick. You sound like lines from a self-help book. If that's how it's going to be, I'll snuff them all out. Every last one of your sickening, happy little reasons for living. He didn't activate the light of judgment, just starts shooting at random towns. Mm. He then summons a spire underneath him to tower over one every, everyone else as he proclaims he will destroy everything. Other party members are able to do the same and reach his level and tell him, no, people always have dreams. Kefka then says he'll just destroy the entire world so there won't be anything left to dream about. And the final battle starts. Alex, the final battle in this game is incredible. Yeah, I've heard. Now, most Final Fantasy boss fights have various phases at this point, but mm-hmm. usually it'll be like, here's the last boss, and then 
you beat the last boss and he goes, oh no, I lost no. control of the evil power I have. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like Neo X death or whatever, <laughs> or whatever zero miss is supposed to be. Yeah. So that's usually how that works, but not this one. <laughs> like everything about Final Fantasy VI, it's over the top and perhaps a little overindulgent. Mm. You start out with four random party members as you fight a tower of monsters, starting at the very bottom with a giant beast who has the rest of the tower growing out of his back as you send up the fight various humans merged within the tower in various poses before finally defeating the final bit of the tower, a man resting while a goddess looks over him. It's a total of nine bosses. It is sick as hell and looks awesome. <laughs> Once you defeat that tower, the party ascends to a cloudy golden realm with divine light as the organ for the star of the game plays again and an angelic Kefka descends from the heavens. Giant wing coming out of his back and everything being Sephiroth before Sephiroth. Mm-hmm. He says life, dreams, hope. Where do they come from? Where do they go? Such meaningless things. I'll destroy them all. It's at this point the song Dancing Mad starts playing. Yeah. A song that yeah. lasts 17 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and when you fight him, I guarantee you will not hear the entire thing. It is the one song in Theater Rhythm uh, Final Fantasy Final Bar Line, the uh, Final Fantasy Rhythm game, where they do not give you the entire thing. <laughs> they give you a five-minute snippet, and they say, just listen, no. <laughs> yeah, no, we're not, we're not doing that. You already have the Advent Children version of, of One Wing Angel. You already have your overly long song. We're not putting two in here. This song is twice the length of Freebird. We're not doing it. We're not doing it. <laughs> Dancing Mad is in Dancing Mad is a song that has been negatively described to me as uh, Noburo Uematsu, the composer of this mm-hmm. game, came up with five different final boss themes that weren't great and just said, what if I just throw them together? I guess I don't know. <laughs> it is actually the most accurate way of describing this. And honestly, I love it. It's eclectic. Mm-hmm. It's all over the place. It informs Kefsa's character an awful lot as just mm-hmm. a con- Giant clown contradiction that just loves chaos. Mm-hmm. Just constantly different streams of thought, mm-hmm. different directions, different ways of being constantly yep. bombarding you unpredictably. Yep, exactly. Exactly. It is 100% perfect. Now, the final battle is actually very easy, unfortunately. <laughs> 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 Most because Final Fantasy VI is kind of an easy game. Yeah. Uh. You kill him so hard, he turns it to dust. Now, with that, though, magic begins to disappear from the world, and thus, the tower begins to collapse. Terra, in her esper form, collapses on the ground, and the magicite begins to disappear from the party. Terra gets up and tells everyone to follow her. She'll use the last of her strength to lead her out. Now, you can't get here without Terra, and if you mm-hmm. do this, like, right as the final battle starts, Terra goes... Like, literally just like a poochie, my people need me, and just flies uh-huh. to the plate, like, flies <laughs> away from the children. <laughs> and, like, after the battle ends, she just, like, lands, collapses, goes, don't worry, I- I'm gonna help now. <laughs> it's like, girl, you're late. But anyways, what follows is a 23-minute ending. <laughs> Once again, this game is a little overindulgent, but I do love mm-hmm. this ending, because how it works is that it's in sepia tone and black and white, and the sepia tone parts, like, are represented by objects that represent each character. So it'll be like, here's a coin, and it'll be like, whatever you named your character starring as Edgar Figaro. 
And then it'll show a little vignette of like what that character is doing as he is escaping the tower that usually informs their character. Like, and it'll do this for every single character you have, mm. which is what makes it incredibly long. Mm-hmm. It's something that I absolutely love, and I'll post a link to it uh, in the show notes. Uh, I, I don't blame you if you don't want to watch twenty three a twenty three <laughs> minute ending, but I like it an awful lot. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to talk about every little vignette that happens because a lot of them aren't that relevant. Like you can watch his Gogo perfectly mime somebody, so he can hit switches at the same time, I guess, or mm-hmm. Moogle basically just hopping around floors, pieces of the floor that are falling. It, mm-hmm. it don't really need those, but. For the ones that I'm going to show, I'm going to talk about, uh, there's one with Setzer, where he flips a coin and tells him to go left, but just as he's about to do, an explosion happens, and he go right, and Setzer goes, huh, whenever you think you're right, you're wrong. That's something you taught me, huh, Daryl? Like, you know, it's like, so, like small stuff like that that do mm-hmm. inform the character. Uh, bigger things include Celis and Locke, like, running through the tower. There's the only one that actually gets shared, by the way. Mm-hmm. Now, as it's uh, as the tower is collapsing, Celis drops Locke's bandana that from way back on the desolate island. She goes to grab it and nearly falls to her doom, only for Locke to catch her, telling her, I won't let go, I promise. He then lifts her back up and is immediately gassed that she would nearly die over a bandana. If Locke's not on the party, Setzer actually picks her up and says, hey, you promised you'd play Maria again for me. And then goes, wait, you did that for a bandana? She's like, yeah, it's it's what gave me hope in this world. And the hope that one day I'll find Locke again. So for Shadow, he collapses on his way out. While Interceptor wants to stay with him, he shoes him away. He then looks to the sky and says, Barum, looks like I can finally stop running. Come and find me, alright? As he presumably dies, the collapsing tower. Hmm. Terra then leads everyone out, but stops in the broken down piece of the Magitech research facility. As one of the Magisite, still holding on, calls out to her. It's her father, who tells her that they must part. Espers will disappear. And you might too, but if your human side feels something strongly enough, you may remain, or he disappears. They all make it to the airship and take off as the last piece of the Magisite disappears. Terra, now fading, flies ahead of the ship to lead him out. Back in the orphan town, one of the teens gives birth as the children tell Terra not to give up. And as the party wakes up on the airship, with Terra, they find Terra passed out on board. It then cuts to the Falcon flying among above the clouds. The sky is blue again, and the credits roll. Tara then walks to the front of the airship, lets her hair down, and feels the wind as the game ends. And that's Final Fantasy VI. Hmm. Wow. Hell of a video game. Yeah. Yeah, so, as I mentioned, Final Fantasy VI at times is a little overindulgent. Mm-hmm. Like, Dancing Mad probably doesn't actually need to be 17 minutes. The ending probably doesn't need to be 23 minutes. Um, the amount of music that's in the game, the amount of characters, there's, there's certainly paring down that could, that could happen. And right. It's that's something that they kind of do in Final Fantasy VII. Like it's something that Square kind of did in general in this era mm-hmm. of like, yeah, not every element of this game is like necessary or contributing to the whole, but it's it's here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just you know what? It turns out memory limitations are becoming less of a thing. Mm-hmm. The chips in for Super Nintendo cartridges are becoming cheaper. So yeah, let's have the sequel, Secret of Mana, have. How about six characters, and depending on which ones you pick, you'll have different paths through the game and whatnot, or a, na- a day and night cycle that honestly doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, like, stuff like that. Like, yeah, or, like, everything that happens with Treasures of the Rudas, a game <laughs> where you make your own spells by just typing in random letters. <laughs> yeah, it 
the the 90s square is square easily at its most overindulgent mm-hmm. and yeah it it typically leads to at least some very interesting things and once again this is a game that despite its overindulgence though i i think is is about it's about right it's about mm-hmm. it does it's not like more than the sum of its parts it's not less than the sum of its parts every character matters and the characters that don't are perfectly optional right so yeah it it's one of my favorite games for a reason. Yeah. Well, and I think even the parts that are optional or not necessary or quote unquote important are still so creative and add this sense of immersion and imaginativeness to mm-hmm. the game that you're like, oh, wow, that can happen. Anything could happen. Yeah, right. Yeah, like... um like, yeah, it's it's a little annoying having to get Shadow's backstory or even get Shadow in the first place because it's, mm-hmm. it's so easy to either never recruit him, to not wait around for him on the floating continent so he just dies, to, mm-hmm. like, not sleeping in Enska's backstory. But, like, when it, when he, like, he does have a dream and it pops up, you go, like, oh, wait, this is a thing? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's crazy. Like, or going back to Thamasa with Strago and just kind of learning a little bit about his backstory, that's... Absolutely not necessary in the game, but it's like, all right, here's just other side quests you can kind of go on. Right. Yeah. Well, it, it reminds me when we were talking about Mass Effect mm-hmm. and how Bioware got to this point where they were so terrified that people would miss out on content mm-hmm. because that content costs so much to create mm-hmm. that, like, the idea that people would just not see it was just like, it, it, you can't do it. It doesn't work. Yeah. And this is like the opposite of that. This is like, yeah, it's in there. Did you find it? Yeah. Did you know that you, if you bet this item, you'll find Shadow? One NPC in one random town mentions it, but that's it. There's yep. going to be no other breadcrumbs for that, man. Yeah. Like, like you may never run into Saban if you don't just wander into this one random town. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's also amazing because it's like, it's the second half of the game that does this. Like, they mm-hmm. spent the first half of the game being incredibly linear about it. Mm-hmm. And in the second half, they just open it up and say, Don't, hey, if you, you miss these things, you miss these things. Like, whatever, right. man. But I think it's also really impressive that the game seems to work without them. Like, if you oh, did yeah. miss them, it's not that big a deal. It's not. And in weird ways, you sometimes get more plot elements because of that. Like, mm-hmm. if you don't get Shadow, you get Realms flashback about her father abandoning her. Or if you don't get Locke, you sell us literally spells out why the bandana is important to her mm-hmm. something that may not be necessary but it's it's there at least so yeah there's even like there's even a purpose to sometimes missing characters oddly enough mm-hmm. yeah yeah and it's interesting to see like how they're going to learn a lot of lessons from final fantasy 6 from some of the stuff they do in this game and apply it to final fantasy 7 mm-hmm. a game that has final fantasy 6's fingerprints all over it yeah like it I, I see all of the ways that this game influenced seven and interestingly nine. Yeah. I see both of those as having like heavy influence from FF six. Oh yeah. Especially nine with the way that they literally implemented a system where you hit a button and you could just see a random scene between two people when you're in town. Mm-hmm. A, a feature I really, really like. They need to bring it back. So to talk about a completely different RPG series from a completely different company, mm-hmm. it is the best feature of the Tales of series mm. that you'll just be wandering around and then a button will come up and say, hey, do you want to watch a scene where your characters talk to each other? Yeah. 
And the answer is yes, because the degree of solidifying the character interactions and bonds between your party members that that feature adds mm-hmm. is unspeakable. Yeah. Yeah, it turns out it works incredibly well. Just having small, almost meaningless interactions between your party members is crucial for their character development. Yeah. It makes it seem like people, and it makes it seem like they're not just operating in a vacuum. Yeah. Yeah. You know what game did that very badly? Mm. The first Octopath Traveler. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you would go into a town and, like, yeah, there'll be... Uh, a button that you could hit to see like scenes between two random party members as they talk uh-huh. about whatever's going on. But it doesn't play unless those people are in your party at that exact moment. So I have heard what I think gives a lot of insight to a lot of how character interaction in that game works mm-hmm. is that the assumption the developers made, I have been told, was that you would get a full party, i.e. four characters, and mm-hmm. stop. You would not recruit all eight party members. You would recruit a selection of four, and that would be your party. That is nuts. Why they would ever make that assumption is beyond me. But it explains, like, why your party members have these really generic interactions, Mm -hmm. like, in towns or in combat. It's because they didn't know who would be in the party. Huh. Yeah, no, that's absolutely nuts. Yeah. And it's why for Octopath 2, they fixed a lot of that, because then they started working under the assumption of everyone will be there. Yeah. Yeah, which is the right assumption to have, because like, yes. why would why would you not do that? Yeah. Oh, wow. That is insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had to, like, rely on, like, a wiki where it's just like, okay, well, I'm at this part of the game. Okay, what is... What, what character interactions are supposed to happen here? Oh, man, that's fun. Oh, wow. I really need to play Octopath 2. I do, too. I... So I never played Octopath 1, Mm -hmm. and everything I've heard about Octopath 2 is like, maybe I should just skip one. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm hearing, too. I feel like it sounds like 2 is just a better game through and through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a... I love Octopath 1. I absolutely love it. It's repetitive Mm -hmm. as hell, but I love that game. Mm -hmm. But yes, I I, I might check to see if it's on sale after Uh this. All right, well, we got we got really off. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, moving back to the the classic RPG. Yeah, but yeah, no, the way it works with this character is great, and I, I I do appreciate that they are. This is the first game where there's optional party members, and yes. I like that one of the optional party members does have some relevance in the form of Mog, but the other two just mm-hmm. absolutely don't. Like one right. is a joke in Umaro; he's just a berserker. That's it, mm-hmm. and the other is just a Final Fantasy V reference, which I love. <laughs> right, like. It's it's just kind of great that they just, like, have those in there. And it's interesting that, like, they're only going to do that, like, one other time in Final Fantasy VII. And weirdly mm-hmm. enough, it's almost the game's detriment because those two characters are weirdly important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, playing FF7 without Yuffie and Vincent there is, like, you don't have the whole party. What are you doing? Yeah. Yeah, you, you don't. And, like, it's crazy considering one of the characters is, like, has such an importance in relation to, like, Sephiroth and mm-hmm. Hojo. Like, right. At least with Yuffie, it's like, well, she does have importance to, like, the entire world building of the game. Yeah, she has, Wutai, she has but... backstory, but I really hope, we're talking about a different RPG again, but I hope <laughs> Rebirth does more with Yuffie's, like, relevance. Because mm-hmm. she has, like, a lot of connection to things that are going on, and, like you said, the world building. But mm-hmm. it's sort of like, okay, well, we talked about her traumatic childhood. Anyway, moving on. 
I get the feeling that if they if they did integrate, they are definitely planning on yeah. making sure Yuffie is going to be doing some crazy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, at, at the very least, could she have like a tangible connection to another character at this time? Ooh, that'd be nice. Because it felt like she, again, she sort of had her whole side quest and then everyone was like, anyway, Yuffie's still here. <laughs> I like how they solve that problem later by just shoving her in with Vincent and Kate Sith, of all people. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, the side characters. Yeah, the side characters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, once again, back to Final Fantasy. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I think I do have to say, I feel like there is kind of a through line with, I'm going to say every Final Fantasy up until 10, mm. where a lot of the character writing feels like it, how do I put this? It works incidentally. Yeah. Like it's not, the character writing is not like the biggest driving force of the game. Oh, no. It like the, the plot structure is much more of a driving force and the characters you you almost sort of fill in the blanks for yourself Mm -hmm. yeah i i think a lot of it has to do with just like thinking about it how square usually writes their characters in final fantasy is they usually have like three or four primary characters they'll focus everything around and then everyone else just orbits around them right Mm -hmm. yeah like if you start with Really, if you start with, I, I guess you can start with Final Fantasy too. You have you, you have Therian and and Maria, mm-hmm. and then um, Mary, Maria's brother Leon, and then just guys just sort of there, like I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, and then Final Fantasy four, you have uh, you have the the triangle of Cain, Cecil, and Rosa, mm-hmm. and like there's other characters. They have their own little arcs and whatnot, but then they're just sort of hanging on out, right? Uh, and then yeah, like seven seven has like everyone be a little bit more involved mm-hmm. even though it is definitely the you know it is the cloud Aerith, and arguably tifa show right yeah arguably yeah that's that's pretty <laughs> arguably i will say at least for final fantasy 7 like the characters just in general have a lot more to do so yes that one yeah, definitely, definitely. It, it's definitely not too bad mm-hmm. um but then you get like right back to eight and it's just like okay well it's, it's cloud Renoa. Right. And that Cloud Renoa, gee, Squall and Renoa. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and and everyone else going, man, Squall and Renoa sure are a great couple. They sure are a great couple. We conveniently lost all our memories, so we don't have to have much of a personality <laughs> outside of that, other than Cowboy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's kind of typically what they do. And, like, they, mm-hmm. over time, they've gotten better about that, like... Yeah, definitely. Like, like 10's a lot better about that, like, minus mm-hmm. Kamari, arguably. Right. And even then, Kamari at least has moments. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't really speak for 12 too much, but, like, 15, like, 13 mm-hmm. and 15, actually, both mm-hmm. uh, both tend to at least have a lot going on with their characters. Whether or not they do a good job with them is up for debate, I would say. 15 did a good job with them, I would say. 15 did, yes. That was more in reference to 13, arguably. Yes, yeah, I know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes. Oh, God. But, sorry, okay. go ahead. Oh, no. This is tangentially related. I need to tell mm-hmm. you about the Final Fantasy XV speed right after this. But, oh, okay. Uh, I was going to say, so I, I do find it really interesting the way Six does it of like, they still sort of have these like triangles and small central groups, but they have multiple ones. Yeah. So people sort of orbit different characters and mm-hmm. you can switch focus between those different groups. 
Yeah, totally. And it speaks to their admittedly failed commitment to not have Terra be the main character, right? right? That no main character mantra that while eventually Terra does become the main character and like literally will be forced into your party regardless of what you do at the end of the game, like mm-hmm. the fact they start you off with Celis and then you spend most of the world ruined without Terra really goes right. a long way with for that, right? Mm-hmm. Or the long stretches of the world of balance where you just don't have terror in your party. Like, they they hard commit to being like, okay, you need to use other characters and see what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I think it works out for the writing for the better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Alex, how are you feeling? I feel good. I, I see why people adore this game. Yep. Me too. Me too. It's, it's an excellent game. I, at this point, hilariously surprised... Or, Hilariously surprised is the wrong word. I am pleasantly surprised that Square has somehow not made a sequel or a remake of this beyond the beyond the pixel mm-hmm. remasters. Mm-hmm. Like literally every other game, I think, has gotten extended content or something similar. Whereas Final right. Fantasy VI just got an extra dungeon to Game Boy Advance, uh, mm-hmm. or, and that's it, man. Yeah, I, I I suspect that's going to change one day, but <sighs> probably I don't know, like. So obviously they are still on their Final Fantasy VII sequel train. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like everything else just feels like it fizzled out. Like Final Fantasy XV effectively died before it was finished. Yeah. Final Fantasy IV, they tried the after years and people were just like, no, thank you. <laughs> the most 70s CBS primetime show name for <laughs> For a video game, the after years, God. <laughs> yeah, and like they remade like they remade three and technically four as well for right. for the DS and 3DS. Right. But like, yeah, like you get beyond that, like there's a there's always that rumor that they're gonna do something with ten, but like if they're gonna do something with ten, that probably takes up their bandwidth to keep them from doing something with six, right? Probably. I so my view on this is that Square has two classes of remakes. Hmm. One is the Final Fantasy VII class, where it's the company's biggest project and we will put as much money as we have to to make this the biggest game ever made. Yeah. And the other is something on the level of, like, Trials of Mana, Mm -hmm. where it's like, it's not that big a thing. It is a full remake of the game and we will take some design changes and rebalances and stuff into considerations, but, like, it's... It's not that. It's a much smaller scale project. Yeah. And in my mind, if they touch 10, it's going to be a 7 class remake. I mean, it would have to be, right? Right. Whereas if they touch something like 9 or I think even 6, I think it would be one of the smaller scale ones. Yeah, you're probably right. Like something they maybe would throw out on a Switch or a Switch 2, you know. Yeah. Don't have to put as much resources behind it. Yeah, you're probably right about that. Which... Uh, I don't uh, I don't think that's a bad thing. No. I think a lot of Final Fantasy slot well into that smaller scale remake. Oh yeah, they totally do. Like and I guess to be fair, they're not afraid to do that even recently. Like yeah. I mean ever I, I guess it depends on what you think of Ever Crisis. Ever Crisis exists. <laughs> yeah. And you know, that's definitely a lower budget Final Fantasy related thing. Mhm. So yeah, no, I I could totally see that happening. That does make sense, but at least for the moment, they're not touching it. And yeah, they're not just just leave that one where it is. 
Everyone likes it. Everyone likes it. Don't don't mess with it too much. Do we have like a definitive edition of Final Fantasy VI that someone could just play right now? So yes and no. <laughs> Why is it so hard for this company to just put out a definitive edition of something? Yeah. It, so to be fair, the Pixel Remaster is perfectly fine. There uh-huh. is. It's one of those things where, like, graphical fidelity on the Super Nintendo got good enough that the Pixel Remaster arguably looks worse uh-huh. than OG Final Fantasy VI, unlike literally every other right. Pixel Remaster game. Um, and there's also arguments that the music is uh, not not as good as the original, although you can just switch to the original soundtrack, so that that's mm-hmm. not really relevant. Right. Um, for the longest time, the Game Boy Advance version was considered the gold standard because right. it had a good translation. And, but that, the colors in it were wrong, and the music in that was just yeah, bad. The the GBA's sound compression is just so rough. Yeah, if I remember correctly, there's actually a patch for that that you could download, and it actually works on stock hard- hardware that makes it sound so much better. Uh-huh. But that's, you know, that's not something you can easily get. And also, right, it's a Game that, Boy Advance game, so like, right, what are we that's, doing? Okay, so you need a Game Boy Advance emulator, and then you need a third-party patch to fix the sound compression, mm-hmm. and the... Like, just, yeah. Square, you've got, like, ten of these things, and we're just, we're just asking for you to put a version on Steam that has the best elements of all the versions that have already come out, mm-hmm. and that you own. Like, there's, there's almost no rights issue. You just need to, please, please, just. Yeah, because I'm trying to think, like, even if you were, like, get it on, like, the PlayStation 4 Mm-hmm. I think it's like the PS1 Classics version, so you're getting the anthology version with the, the low, oh, low god. Times. Yeah, fairly certain about that. Probably. That seems like a thing they would do. Oh, you can literally just download a mod that replaces the tile sets with the Super Nintendo versions if you wanted to. So if you have the okay. if you have a PC version of Pixel Remaster, there you go. Yeah, fair. <laughs> you could even get Porsche replacements in case you want more anime. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, also like why is that not just built into the game yeah yeah i don't really know why like there there are so many remaster remake re-releases at this point where they're like look at this amazing new artwork we've added but if you don't want it you can press this button and it goes away there is a an action rpg an old old action rpg series called wonder boy mm-hmm Oh, good old Wonder Boy. What and there? So the third game in that series got a total remake on the Switch mm-hmm. with this incredible, like hand-drawn, almost like pencil-ish anime style. Looks amazing. But also, you can just press a button and turn that into eight-bit NES ass sprites mm-hmm. at any time. Yeah, and it's great. It's great that they did it's that. It's great. It's like this is this is so standard at this point. Why is Square still struggling with this? <laughs> yeah, it's it's really strange because like it's it's not just a Square problem. Like a lot of companies yeah. have this issue, um, but just for like one reason or another, it's just shockingly hard to just play their old games. You know, you know what? Actually, that's not mm-hmm. completely true. Because mm. if you wanted to play old versions of, like, Secret of Mana, for instance, mm. you could actually do so easily uh-huh. on the Switch and other platforms. 
Oh, geez. Actually, no. This is just a, weirdly a Final Fantasy problem. It, yeah. it is a Final Fantasy problem. It, it, it feels to me like, but this is Final Fantasy. Mm-hmm. It, it has to be, like, special, and we need to milk it as much as we can. But even that doesn't make sense, because then if that was the case, they would stop trying to, like, they would stop porting over the PC version of Final Fantasy VII. <laughs> <laughs> the one okay, where the look, menus are also in 20 FPS, so they, they're slow and laggy. Look, we don't want to put that much work into milking it. <laughs> Oh, man. Final Fantasy might be the biggest brand with the worst brand control out there. Dude, you are not wrong about that. <laughs> it's it's galling. It's absolutely galling. It's incre- it is like still, to this day, the company's most profitable IP by a thousand miles. Mm-hmm. Like, Dragon Quest is incredibly popular in Japan, but just cannot make a massive impact outside. (laughs) Final Fantasy has global impact. And yet every, like, it feels like every year there's like, well, they screwed up Final Fantasy in this way now. (laughs) (laughs) They found a new way. (laughs) It's like, control your brand, Square. No, yeah, right? I don't want your collectible NFT action figures of Final Fantasy VII. <laughs> <laughs> now you're going to take them. You're going to like it. Uh, yeah. Well, maybe one day Square will learn. I mean, they won't. Maybe. But... No, no. It's, it's so entertaining to me that every t- it does not matter what game it is. Every time we talk about a Square game on here, we inevitably talk about Square as a company. We inevitably do, because how can you not? You can't not. It's just, it's the most. <laughs> oh, man, they are my favorite company I love to hate. The, yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. And I will I will never stop buying their shit. Unlike, unlike Ubisoft, I will never stop buying their shit. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Literally next month, I plan yep. on taking a day off and spending probably $80 on a Final Fantasy product. <laughs> Because to their credit, they do know where to put effort. They do. Oh, yes, they do. They're like, hey, are you so goddamn tired of Final Fantasy VII and us trying to make Final Fantasy VII the thing it used to be? And we're like, yeah. And they're like, look how hot this game looks, though. Yeah. Yeah, it looks great, doesn't it? You're like, It looks amazing. Oh, everything about Gold Saucer. They gave you the car. They're like, look how Red 13 rides his chocobo. And you're like, yeah, man. <laughs> we put another musical stage sequence in here. Speaking of FF6, mm-hmm. that legacy lives on. Yep. Yep. Uh, I can't wait to get disappointed when Genesis shows up, though. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, you know it's going to happen. It's gonna, it, uh, it will. I hope he's just standing off frame, just saying something <laughs> about Loveless, and then everyone just ignores him. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, Alex, I think that's going to do it for us today. I think so. <laughs> Thank you for doing this with me, as always. Of course. And for you, the viewer, if you want to listen to other episodes of Fall Into Potholes, go to ftp.podbean.com or search for Fall Into Potholes on your podcast service of choice. Uh, we're also on YouTube. Just search for Fall Into Potholes and you'll be able to find us. As well. And we'll also, of course, post a link to the episode in the show notes. Uh, Remember to leave us a a like, a follow, all those good stuff. 
and leave us a comment telling us how we're doing, which you could do either on the YouTube video or you could do at fallingthroughplotholes at gmail.com. Uh, tell us all about your favorite dumb mistake that Square has made recently. Tell us about how much you hate Ever Crisis <laughs> or how disappointed you got when you learned the new CEO was also into NFTs. <laughs> I, uh, apparently... People don't hate Ever Crisis that much because it's the only gotcha they have that's making money. Ah. They have like nine Final Fantasy gotchas and they're all underperforming except for Ever Crisis. <laughs> well, that's that's good. <laughs> yeah, it's the only one that's not going to get killed off. Yep. Well, that's good because if I remember correctly, they still haven't released all of it. So. Mm-hmm. Good for the Ever Crisis fans out there, I guess. Yep. Oh, but yeah, tell us all about that. In the meantime, take care, everybody. Take care.